Hi, welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgesman. As part of this program's ongoing scrutiny of events before, during, and after 9-11, I'm pleased to welcome today a lawyer who represents a detainee at Guantanamo Bay for whom he says former President Bush approved the creation of the U.S. government's torture program. The detainee is Saudi national Zain al-Abidin Mohammed Hussein, also known as Abu Zubaydah. Nabbed in March 2002 and tortured at various CIA black sites, including 83 times waterboarded in one month. Uh, his torture, by the way, was being followed by then President Bush. Zubaydah was eventually brought to Guantanamo Bay where he languishes today, even though the US government has admitted he was not the high value Al-Qaeda terrorist and close Bin Laden associate that former President Bush publicly said he was. Zumaida may, however, be an inconvenient detainee for other reasons, which I'll be discussing with his lawyer. Attorney, author, and professor Mark Denbo is director of Seton Hall University's Law Center for Policy and Research that is internationally known for its series of reports on the Guantanamo Bay detention camp. Then Bo's experience representing two detainees inspired him to further scrutinize the conditions of detainment. This led to the prodigious research he has overseen for 15 years, analyzing government data to illuminate the interrogation and intelligence practices of the United States. This work has resulted in the Guantanamo Reports, an invaluable record of great historic and legal significance. The reports have been introduced into the congressional record by the Senate Armed Services Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and the House Armed Services Committee. And it has also been introduced as part of a resolution by the European Parliament. Welcome, Professor Denbo. Thank you very much. So first, one of the things that I wanna to talk to you about, and I, I don't know how much you can or can't say or know or know, there were reports that when Zubaydah was uh, captured and he was sent to Afghanistan where they set up this whole fake uh, Saudi looking place, Saudi looking medical facility or something to make it look like he was in Saudi Arabia because they thought that that would frighten him into talking. Um, two people came in, two interrogators, Saudi looking interrogators came in and instead of being frightened, the reports say that he was thrilled to see them. And he started giving them numbers off the top of his head of, you know, Saudi princes that uh, he said, call, these people will take care, care of everything. Everything will be explained. And, you know, then he started talking about how, you know, the Saudi royal family, Saudi government had made a deal with bin Laden to fund him and Al Qaeda as long as he kept his, uh, his fundamentalist operations away from Saudi Arabia. And uh, anyway, these were CIA interrogators. And when that happened, uh, they kind of freaked out. I mean, this is better than the 28 pages, frankly, this guy, what he said. And uh, next thing you know, three of the princes that he mentioned 
die four months later. They're young people, but one dies of thirst. Another one died, one was 25, the youngest one, 25, died of thirst. And the two others, uh, let me see, one died in a car crash going to the funeral of the other one who died of a heart attack. So talk to me about that. Well, two things. I can't tell you anything that Abu Zubayd has told me because the protective order forbids me from quoting him. And of course, I'm not allowed to reveal any information that would be classified. So there is there are limitations on what I can say. Okay. I will tell you this. I have never heard anything of that nature from him. I have heard wow. it from many other people. Um, um, he is... Um, uh, He's actually not a Saudi, and that's one of the interesting problems. He was born in Saudi Arabia, raised in Saudi Arabia, but in fact, Saudi Arabia does not consider him a Saudi because to be a Saudi, you have to be born of a father who was a Saudi Arabian. And Abu Zubaydah's father was, was born in Palestine. So Saudi okay. Arabia considers his father Palestinian, and therefore Zayn, um, Abu Zubaydah, is also considered to be a Palestinian. But he can't be a Palestinian because you can't be a Palestinian, according to Palestine, unless you're born in Palestine. <laughs> so he's actually stateless, and he has a brother living in the United States. They would love to deport, but there's no country they can send him to. So he grew up in Saudi Arabia, but he did leave Saudi Arabia and went to college in India. So you can't talk at all about what his activity, what act, what his activities were. Why was he detained then? Oh, um, that really goes to this. That story is quite a simple, uh, quite an interesting one, and, and known publicly. Uh, if you've spent the time dealing with it, which is a lot of work, um, the thing about um, uh, his detention was the story goes like this: the United States, a man named Rassam. This story, I'll just take a minute, is deciding he wants to come in the United States to blow up LAX airport for the 1999 millennium. He seems to have panicked coming into the border, gotten so scared that the customs people brought him aside. They eventually found explosives in the trunk of his car. He was then arrested. The FBI listed him as a dangerous person. And they, after that, in December 29th, 1999, they sent out a bulletin saying, look for Abu Zubaydah, because Rassam had said Abu Zubaydah had known of his coming there. That made the U.S. start looking for Abu Zubaydah. Now, the only contact they could have had thereafter was some sort of electronic communications. The truth was Abu Zubaydah had no contact with Rassam. Rassam was captured and naming lots of names and trying to work out a deal for himself. And in fact, Abu Zubaydah always ran what he called a house of martyrs. The house of martyrs was where people came in order to go as a way station to go to a training camp called the Kaldan training camp. And the US got very confused when they finally figured that out. And they assumed the Kaldan training camp was an Al Qaeda camp. But as a matter of fact, it was not an Al-Qaeda camp. And in fact, at one point in the mid to late 90s, 
Zayn was approached by uh, Osama bin Laden and asked to join Al-Qaeda. It's undisputed, he refused. Um, Al-Qaeda had announced the, the US was the, the devil and they had to cut the head off the snake. That was the US. And at no point did Abu Zubaydah ever think that was appropriate. And by 1999, um, Osama bin Laden closed down the training camp, Khaldan, affiliated with Zayn. Zayn never ran the camp, but he actually did, was a connection, bring, sending people to it. So the problem turns out to be that the US believed it was an Al-Qaeda camp. The US believed he was part of Al-Qaeda, and the US believed he was supporting an Al-Qaeda camp all three of which the U.S. has now agreed starting in 2008 are false. The U.S. admits now Khaldan was the only non-Al-Qaeda training camp, that he was never Al-Qaeda, and they admit that Osama bin Laden wanted him to join and he refused. So those factors were picked up from electronic sources. Is that too long an answer so far? No, and I, I, just, I just want to go back to what I was saying before, the information that I was giving you about the three reports, princes. the three princes. You have never asked him about the three princes? Oh, I can't tell you anything. I can't tell you what he okay. said. I can't even tell you what I've asked him. Okay, okay. okay. Here's what I'm saying. Let's just have a hypothetical discussion. It's not likely. If the hypothetical discussion will give you any information. No, no, no. I'll, I'll just speak and you can just like, whatever. Okay. Because this is important because I feel like the three princes story connects Saudi Arabia directly to 9-11. You know? Well, many, I don't think there's any doubt many people have believed that with or without the three princes. Well, well, except for you've got a kind of a firsthand source who came out. And, and, and that's why I'm saying. Um, Who's the firsthand source? Well, him saying, this is what I, you know, this is what I was told. This is what I, uh, this is what I know. This is, you know, they knew that 9-11 was going to happen. I mean, if you read the report on the three princes, and the fact that he gave out the, not the fact, okay, allegedly gave out these numbers to uh, these Saudi princes. Again, those connections are profound. And the fact that these guys end up dying four months after, you know, their names went public, all that I think is a, is a should, should be investigated, don't you think? Oh, I think it, it would make him a very important witness for 9-11 people trying to get to the bottom for the government trying to get to the bottom of 9-11 is my point look here's the problem if it would or would not make him an important witness i couldn't answer that question okay i'm just stating that i think that that is the three prince story its verification and implications are critical are a critical lead. Oh, I think, put it this way. I've heard that story from a variety of public sources. It's fascinating and it's hard to believe. I mean, to have a prince go out in the desert and die of dehydration strikes me as really bizarre, but that's no, 
the same thing as saying Abu Zubaydah has any knowledge of or any connection to that. Well, I'm just saying they connected him. This, I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out who came, who, where, who the sources are for this story because I think you should get that information as as Zubaydah's lawyer, because somehow I think that might impinge on why he's. It's so hard to pry him out of Guantanamo. But maybe I'm wrong. Explain well, to me why he's still there. Okay, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm not saying you're right. I honestly don't have any knowledge that would support or oppose that story. Um, it's from other public sources. It may be from Ali Sufan or John Kiriakou or other people, or subsequent interrogators, Mitchell and Jessen, all of those people may be releasing and leaking information they got. But even what they got isn't necessarily accurate or reliable, and that's been well established. No. Aside, the reason he's there is, in fact, um, um, perhaps worse. Um, he's there because after they captured him on March 28th, President Bush went out and made a very profound, not very coherent, but dramatic statement about how they had finally cracked Al-Qaeda. The number three person was Abu Zubaydah. He had done a lot of activities. Um, he, he was out there and he would be doing it no more. It was a huge breakthrough. And many people believed at that time that he was an important Al-Qaeda person because the one thing he did do, I think it's publicly recognized, was help the former Mujahideen who had been fighting for us against the Russians with Al-Qaeda as for us, needed help getting back to their home countries because their passports had problems. And he was helpful in helping people get back to their home countries including England. Um, and so I think the U.S. got sort of an image. I read that in the newspaper before I ever saw him or represented him, that he was sort of Al-Qaeda's travel agent. That made them, and, and that theory, which had a little bit of background in trying to help people get to their home countries, is what the U.S. wanted, why they wanted to catch him. The initial interest in Abu Zubaydah, which Rassam vaguely mentioned, but the U.S. really wanted him because they wanted, for want of a better word, I'm dating myself, they wanted his Rolodex. They wanted to know where people had been sent, which in its own sense would kind of make sense. I think you can understand they're wanting to catch him. Their problem was he was the first person ever captured by the CIA. He was the first person ever interrogated by the CIA. And... <clears throat> The CIA, in its fight with the FBI, wanted techniques they could use that the FBI could not because the FBI was limited by the Constitution in the United States and the CIA outside the United States had no constitutional restrictions. So the CIA started interrogating him. And their biggest problem was their interrogation produced almost nothing of significance. And the most dramatic and shocking document is a document called The Psychological Assessment of Abu Zubaydah, published on July 24th, um, 2002. And that listed a series of things about him that would make him look like a really, really, really scary bad person. Said he coordinated 9-11, he did terrorist attacks around the world, he trained people, uh, Al-Qaeda people, he was very connected, and other things. Who was responsible for this report? 
Well, the CIA wrote the report to a man named John Yu. Who made oh, yeah. John Yu. Mr. Torture Memo. Right, that's the torture memo, but this is the the assessment that went into justifying why Abu Zubaydah should be the person targeted. Because if you look at the torture memo, the torture memos were written to torture only one person, Abu Zubaydah. His name's mentioned in there. The reason they picked him was because they were told by somebody, the CIA, all these facts about him that are false. And once they tor they got decided to torture him, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence actually has proven, released two cables sent from the torture site. One of the cables said, if he dies, we want assurances that he'll be cremated immediately. Why? They don't say why. We have to figure out why the CIA would want to cremate somebody who dies while being tortured immediately. And I think the, it's not hard to imagine why, but there was followed by another cable. And the second cable said almost immediately thereafter, and if he doesn't die, we want assurances that he'll be held incommunicado for the rest of his life. And they wanted that because they were about to engage in using the torture techniques on him. So they didn't want to be responsible if he died, and they didn't want him allowed to talk. Well, he didn't die. He didn't. There were several incidents that could be called death that were overcome while he was being waterboarded but he didn't die. He's currently detained in Guantanamo and he's detained in Guantanamo under rules that mean no one has ever spoken to him except his torturers, his jailers, and his lawyers, which is primarily, but not exclusively me. So his word, his lips have been sealed and the only people he can talk to are his lawyers. And we have are restricted by a series of classification restrictions and tops above top secret and um, court orders limiting what we can say. So his story of his being tortured, although it's leaking out from a variety of sources, has never come from his mouth. And the reason he is locked up, in my, I'm convinced, is that they didn't want him to talk and releasing him would, of course, um, allow him to talk. But their real problem is not how they tortured him, which was disgusting. And I think we've, his pictures have been published in the New York Times a year ago in December. But the fact that he was not Al-Qaeda, he was not a terrorist, his camp was not an Al-Qaeda camp, and in fact, he had not engaged in any terrorist acts. He's, he's opposed to Israel. He believes Israel is occupying Palestinian lands, but that's his objection. And he's not the only Palestinian who believes that. But that's his belief is really hostile to Israel because he wants the lands returned. And he is also being detained because they actually lied about who he was in order to get permission to torture him in the hope that they would get information. And the reason the Senate Select Committee report is so important is first it revealed that released those two cables if he dies, cremate him, and if he doesn't die, hold him incommunicado. But then the, the Senate Select Committee concluded that if he were tortured, that they concluded that the facts to justify his torture were not true, and the CIA claimed that they had found information from torturing him, 
And the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence said, no, you didn't. The FBI had already had it because the FBI had been interrogating him part of the time from his capture on March 28th until the middle of June when the FBI refused to participate anymore. And it's the story of how the CIA lied to the Department of Justice to get permission to torture, which would, the lying is terrible and torture may be worse, but they actually needed a pretext in order to set up a program to get permission to torture. And the entire American torture program was created based on the CIA claims about what torture techniques they needed and on the CIA's claims that he was such an important man that he needed to be tortured. Uh, this uh, sounds like the ultimate beyond hell catch 22 yep. for him. Yep, that's why the princes is not actually as significant in any way, even if it were true because he's being detained by the US because we have to hide the secrets behind the creation of the torture program. As my students have said, what kind of country would ever be able to admit that they lied in order to be allowed to torture somebody to get information from him they knew he didn't have? Now, I don't wanna be like a dog with a bone, but I do think the three princes thing is important. I'll tell you why. Because there's another report that when it turned out, when it became public that Zubaydah was not Al-Qaeda, et cetera, et cetera, apparently, uh, and this is a report, you know, I have not verified it myself, but apparently Bush turned to Tenet and said to Tenet at some point about this embarrassing stuff, you're not gonna embarrass me about this. Yes, that's okay. the that is in a book called The One Percent Doctrine. And that's by the Wall Street Journal reporter Serkins. I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember his name now because it's a really important book. But it's called The One Percent Doctrine, which is based on Cheney's view, which is if there's a one percent chance that we could avoid an attack, we have to take we have to act as if it's a hundred percent. And that was used to justify torturing people, whether they were exactly had knowledge or not. But Tennant, in, in June, Abu Bush, President Bush made his speech in early April. Abu Zubaydah was captured in late March. When he made that statement, Abu Zubaydah was the only person the CIA had captured and the only person they could interrogate. And they began to interrogate him. And eventually, the FBI refused to participate. He was badly wounded. He was still bleeding eight months later. And um, um, that tenant went to tell the president that, look, the FBI says he isn't the person we, we thought he was, um, or he isn't who you said he was. And um, we've made a mistake. And President Bush says, look, you're not going to cause me to lose face, are you? And tenant said, no, sir, I'm not. That's well established by a Pulitzer Prize author in the Wall Street Journal. Well, what do you think of that? Well, I think it's totally correct. I think, I think they knew very quickly on he wasn't Al-Qaeda. He didn't have any significant knowledge. And that once they caught him, the pre once the president announced he was a big deal, and it was a huge success, they... They were down a slippery slope they couldn't really get off of. They couldn't well say, oops, we're wrong. 
and the, the CIA was pushing to get permission to use techniques that were not permitted by American law, and they needed the White House to get the Justice Department to approve those techniques using the torture memos. So what, talk to me about your fight to pry him out of there. I mean, what are you trying to, what are you telling the government? What rationale are you presenting to the government who doesn't want to hear that he's, you know, who's, that's already ad admitted that he's not who they thought he was well, and still keeping him there? Okay. That's a reasonable question that I would expect a reasonable person to ask, but I, you should trust me, I've asked it also. And um, uh, I would think you could even imagine he's puzzled by that as well. Well, what responses have you gotten? Well, you see, it works in a complicated way. He, I was began as his habeas corpus lawyer, and we filed a series of motions. Explain, explain to my viewers. Yeah, my, uh, you know, habeas uh, corpus. Habeas corpus. Uh, the best image really is it would have begun in 1215, and it would be the equivalent of the sheriff of Nottingham locking Robin Hood up in a dungeon for no reason, holding him there and not letting him out. And then somebody would go to the king, ask for a, for a writ or a complaint, and that was called uh, making him, the sheriff, justify his detention. That's the origins of habeas corpus, and that words where the Latin words produce the body, and it's now been around for 600 years, and it's part of our Constitution. So, but what happened was, in order to hold the hearing, the standard for detention was only the, the people detained, and that's all the Guantanamo people, were enemy combatants. And if the claim was relatively easy for the government to prove, and you needed discovery to prove it wasn't. Now, remember, I've been representing him for 15 years. The information I've come from leaks and cracks and different things, and we've now got the admission. But before that, it was very difficult. Remember the movie, The Report, with Adam Driver? Yeah, yes. That report movie, was the, the report that they were talking about was the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. That's the report that concluded, after mentioning him over 1,100 times, that he was not Al-Qaeda, and he was improperly tortured, and that he, they released the, 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 and that they got no useful information from him, and the facts listed to justify torturing him were false. That's in the movie, and that's in the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. But the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence was not released until uh, uh, December of 2014. So the, the government admission it was false was 12 years after he was captured. And at that point, we were still seeking habeas corpus discovery, and the courts, we had a judge who ruled on none of our motions, didn't rule on discovery demands, and years went by. And so the court would not give us the official information we needed, because our original theory was if we can just prove the truth, which is they tortured him and they knew he wasn't guilty, uh, didn't, wasn't justified, the CIA would want to release him to avoid the embarrassment. We were wrong. Because once the CIA was exposed for having tortured him with the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, the truth was out. They had tortured. It's no longer disputed they tortured him. It's not disputed it wasn't Al-Qaeda. And the pieces are all there. But you see, what's happening in Guantanamo is there's something called the military commissions. 
and they're a substitute for the federal courts. And the military commissions will appoint a judge to prosecute you when the charges have been filed. Until charges have been filed, there's no judge assigned to the case. So for all of this time, the, the military uh, prosecution has not filed charges against Abu Zubaydah. So we can't get to a judge. So there is no judge to talk to. And the prosecutors won't talk to us because they say there's not a case we haven't charged him. Why do you think they're dragging their feet? Well, the same reason. I think it's the same reason why no one wants the truth out. I am 100% confident after 15 years of being skeptical about it that Abu Zubaydah is being detained because he was wrongly tortured, and we don't want to admit it. As one of my students said, what country would want to admit that it created a torture program, a country that had never had a torture program, and had created it pretextual, using a particular person as the pretext for it, even when they knew he wasn't the right person when they created this pretext? I, mean, I would, this would sound paranoid, except the Senate Select Committee produced and confirmed what I've just told you. Nobody is claiming he was a member of Al-Qaeda. Now, didn't he get $100,000 from Poland? Who he said- got 200,000 euro, I believe. It was in euro, and I think it was 200,000 from Poland and 200,000 from Lithuania. Explain why. Sure. The, the European Court of Human Rights found that both Poland and later Lithuania had knowingly approved and permitted the U.S. to come on their soil and to create a place where the U.S. could torture him secretly. And the European Court of Human Rights concluded that Poland, by doing that, and Lithuania, by doing that, had violated Abu Zubaydah's rights under the, the human rights laws of Europe. In, we could only get money from the foreign countries because they own, you had to be a member of the European Court of Human Rights and to recognize its legitimacy for it to have a case. And the European Court of Human Rights couldn't bring a case against the US. But just to add to this, we have two different decisions, ravagely by the US, and he also there's currently litigation in London in the high court in which the parliament has concluded that the intelligence community in, of England was cooperating with our torturing Abu Zubaydah in the sense, this is sort of an image, that they were standing outside the door listening to what the torture and the information was coming in and passing notes under the door saying, ask him about this or ask him about that. I suspect it was a little more sophisticated but Parliament has concluded that, well, they took advantage of our torturing him to get the questions they wanted answered. So that suit is pending in London now, too. So, this is so crazy. I feel like I'm smoking crack. He has collected all this money from these other courts, these, these European courts that recognize that this torture was, was completely out of order, right? Yeah, he hasn't collected the money. I'll tell that's another story. Oh. He's won the judgments. He's won the judgment. Okay. Why hasn't he collected the money? Well, is that right being after, blocked or something or what? Yes, right after 9-11, um, the US went to the UN and asked them to freeze his assets. 
and so other people's assets. And they've done that, you know, for, they do it for Iran, they do it for lots of, there are hundreds, there are tens of thousands of people on this list, mobsters, and so on. And we were able to go to the UN and get him released, removed from the frozen asset list, which was quite an achievement because it required the UN Security Council to approve his removal from the list. And the UN Security Council did remove him from the frozen assets list, which allows me to say I have a better batting average in the UN Security Council than the US does. We're, we're, we've got, we're 100%. But then it turns out there's also an asset, frozen asset list run by the US Treasury Department, which is vastly greater than the UN, and they put him on that too. And that actually means that in Europe, if there's any money transferred using any banking systems that include the US operations, they can't transfer his money. So right now we're having trouble getting his money out. We will, but it's very difficult. So he still hasn't collected it. Well, it sounds like a Bitcoin situation or something should be. Uh... Anyway, here, let, let me just. I don't think he'd understand the Bitcoin image. I was, wasn't around for that. Okay, so uh, one thing I'm trying to understand is if if by their own admission he's not an enemy combatant, right? By the government's yes. own admission he is not an enemy combatant. Why why is whether waiting for a judge even necessary? Okay, we have federal court judges. You know, there's two parts to this. The military commission prosecutes people for crimes. They won't prosecute him for a crime because they know he didn't commit any. So they just won't charge it. We have a federal district court judge who now is in fact moving and we are starting to get the discovery. And I expect that we will in the not too distant future have our trial and hearing in front of him for which I have my hopes keep springing. And I suspect that we may be quite successful. On the other hand, I think it's also possible that they're going to close Guantanamo and they'll find some other way to release him and perhaps not send him to a place that's ideal. So it's a little hard to figure what's happening. We'll yeah, I mean, do you, don't, do you not think that if he's ever released that his personal security will be in jeopardy? I wouldn't think so. I mean, from whom? America? Yeah. The U.S. doesn't like use loose ends like that, right? No, they don't. But, you know, um, having held him locked up for 20 years, um, I think his story is dated. They've admitted they tortured him. They admitted they were wrong. They've admitted that in a variety of ways. I don't think they can be humiliated much more than that, because in the time he's there, we've been able to release the ugliest part of his story. I understood why they wanted to hold him incommunicado. Who wouldn't? What conspirator trying to torture somebody wouldn't want to keep it a secret. But once the secret is out, it loses a lot of its power to be kept secret. Well, now I want to talk about the bigger picture, because this is why I think this isn't the big picture. Well, you okay. tell you tell me when I when I ask you this question, okay? Right. Because as a result of the torture program, the torture memo, 
I mean, I read, I scrutinized that timeline that you did. You did an amazing timeline from 2001 to 2009. I don't know if you've updated it yet at all. Oh, we, we just did it during the period of time there was a global war on terror. And that ended. Okay. Okay. But now there are these laws in place that, you know, if, if that allows the executive branch, it seems to me now called blanche all the time per, in perpetuity, if they declare somebody an enemy combatant, you don't have PO, you know, if they're not a POW, they're an enemy combatant, all of a sudden the executive branch has all the power it needs to do whatever it wants. Well, I think the only thing I can say to that is that if they had the power to do it previously, they, they certainly would have the power to continue to do it. Well, no, they arrogated that power to to themselves, uh, starting with Abu Zubaydah, right? Right, but that arrogation means they had the power and they've used it. And I don't think there's a way we could say they couldn't do that again in another time, because as you've pointed out, they had the ability to take that power for themselves and nobody's been able to stop them. Um, so I think your point is right, that it could easily be done again um, although I actually believe there are many consequences of this that would make it costly to redo this particular one. But um, if they were to do it again, you know, habeas corpus works, except for the corruption of the panic, the hysteria, and the fear. And, you know, almost everything about Abu Zubaydah involved hysterical panic, fear, anger, and, and, and rage about Al-Qaeda and 9-11. And once 9-11 happened, America as a country panicked. We were scared. We were worried they were going to pollute our drinking water. They were going to blow up dams. They were going to do all sorts of things. And um, they, I think you can only thing you can say is people panicked. And the CIA especially panicked because they believed, perhaps not a little harshly, but that they were responsible for not stopping 9-11. So by God, they were going to leave no stone unturned. The 1% doctrine applied, and they were going to go deal with that. Well, if you talk to the FBI guys who were part of Alex Station, um, they blame the CIA for blocking all, you know, blocking them getting information about uh, about uh, before 9-11 about these guys coming and being in the country and planning uh 9-11. I mean, there's a whole hist there's a whole record back of that too. So, I mean, yeah. I my, my thing is everybody now is comfortable saying CIA bad, FBI good. And that's half right. Exactly. I agree. The FBI was not, is not good either. And um, they permitted this and engaged in actions that they should have prevented. I don't think they're equally culpable because the FBI did walk away from Abu Zubaydah and torturing him before the torture memos. But should anybody be held accountable for Everybody all of this? Everybody should be held accountable. Well, let's start naming names. Who should be held accountable? Well, Mitchell and Jessen for torturing him and charging, working out contracts. Obviously, Rodriguez, the man of the deputy CIA director who destroyed the videotapes of Abu Zubaydah's torture, even though there was a federal court order to preserve them. I mean, obviously, he should be. 
but I think you you know you can't you lose track of all of the people that should be involved. Um, I think that the FBI, if they wanted to investigate it, would find many FBI agents hands were dirty. But you know the other problem is when you have a complete swamp of disgusting people, there are gradations of disgusting. What about the leaders? What well, about Rumsfeld and you and and even Bush himself? I mean, oh, I, I, look, I, Bush knew a lot and permitted it. You, it's inexcusable. It's corrupt. He um, uh, wanted this, supported this. He um, passed on the psychological assessment that was false and known to be false at the time it was written. So John Yu is inexcusable. Um, and But if you try to ask who else should be caught, remember, we're dealing with secret organizations. We don't know all the CIA people who were involved in this. We don't know all the FBI agents were involved in this. The only thing we know about who's involved are pieces of information that leaked out from different places that have been confirmed. Journalists have discovered it. Um, new uh, Media reports have discovered it. Asking questions such as you're asking is an important part of opening it up. Um, and I think that, um, uh, I think probably the, the, uh, the, the, the admission by tenant that they would protect um, Bush's face is the most damning thing because of course that was in June before the CIA got the torture memos. So the CIA was looking for memos to torture Abu Zubaydah in, during and after the director of the CIA told the president that he really wasn't who the president had said he was. Let me ask you something. Do you think that this whole torture program, the whole, I mean, 80,000 people, that's bigger than the- <laughs> Wait, 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 where does the 80,000 80, people have been, were, have been detained or grabbed from the, on the war on terror? It's in your, it's in your uh, timeline, I believe. Right. And- Being grabbed is not the same as torture. No, I understand, but you know, even being grabbed, you know, without being told what you've done or whatever. But in my point being, is it too big a statement to make that we're, there's a Nuremberg trial? If, if all things in terms of laws, national and international, if all of those things were taken into consideration, um, even though it's the war on terror as opposed to, you know, the usual type of war, is there a Nuremberg situation going on here? And could there be a Nuremberg situation going, you know, applied to this war crimes, crimes against humanity, et cetera? Well, I don't get the Nuremberg reference because I think it was done at a, a lower level than that by people eager to solve problems. Look. If you start going through that long list of numbers, there are many uh, um, Muslims from Southeast Asia, the Middle East, who are locked up in the United States because people were suspicious of them. And they'd be held sometimes for days and weeks at a time uh, as material witnesses and then released. Um, um, and in America, there, our view really is that was a terrible thing, that was a mistake, but gee, justice done, they were finally released. So America tries to take, look on its conduct in a 
much more forgiving light. But even if it's overly forgiving, I don't think America was doing anything except trying to stop what they hysterically feared was imminent. Look, I think America is trying now to getting hysterical about homegrown terrorists. And I don't think we know what's going to happen to sweep them up and catch them. I think it's important to keep in mind that reasonable and normal people, when they get scared, do abnormal and unreasonable things. Oh, wait a second. Uh, look, right after 9-11, all of a sudden it was all holds barred. We could traipse around to any country in the world. You know, that's all right there is a sovereignty issue for these nations, right? Traipse all, we can grab whoever we suspect. We can do, and eventually the ones that we really think did something, we can torture. We can hold them forever. I mean, if every, think about it this way. If every country in the world behaved like that, where would we be? We'd be in trouble. Well, We're in trouble now. But uh, you asked me about the Nuremberg question. Look, you know, the global war on terror was a remarkable thing. The president made countries sign treaties or uh, compacts agreeing to allow the U.S. to do a variety of things, including fly over their sovereign territory, demand that they help us catch terrorists, that they share intelligence information. Some of them involves uh, sharing troops. Well, so one of the problems on the sovereignty question is the U.S. bullied all these people into giving them sovereignty to do this. So it's, in some ways, the most evil people were the ones who were most careful about not, not doing the obviously evil thing. They didn't go into all of these countries to seek um, uh, without permission. It was remarkable. And you know, when they tried to have create a global war on terror, you have to look at it sometimes. There weren't many countries in it, and it was perfectly possible for you to be a country joining the global war on terror anonymously. Think of how brave our allies were so brave, they were willing to support us by agreeing, but only being listed anonymously, and all they would allow the U.S. to do is fly pl military planes over their territory. I mean, the, the, I, I think my problem is I believe they're really disgusting people. I believe Mitchell and Jessup, who were the primary. Oh, my God. Yeah. Those people clearly were looking people in the eye and engaging in a series of really disgusting. Those are the psychiatrists, by the way, or the psychologists yes. who Psychology. came up with the, uh, you know, this is had the best way to torture these people. Right. They, Civilians. Yes. They, well, they were military before, and then they quit the military to become CIA contractors. That's because they were paid. Oh, make some money. Mm -hmm. A lot more money. Yeah. I think I think part of life is just trying to figure out where you look and say who's a bad person, who's done so, and I think we can find plenty of them. Well, I'm, in the intelligence community, I mean you have to be part psychopath just to even join because you you spend your time a lot of time lying, you know, dissembling to people to get information or to do whatever it is you have to do uh, for your country. You know, again, on the intelligence community, you know where most of their information comes from? Electron yeah, news. <laughs> no, and, and electronic surveillance. Yeah. Well, they weren't actually lying. They were sitting there invading privacy and violating laws and doing things like that. But um, um, I think that's the, the CIA's, the reason Abu Zubaydah was the first person they tortured from the middle, interrogated for a long time, was because they didn't interrogate people. That wasn't their MO. 
they would go into a country, bribe somebody, turn a spy, pay the money, and get information. That was their trick, setting up co companies where there were friends so they could work with people. Um, I think it's really disgusting and corrupt, but the worst part about it is they're also not very good at it. For me, the amazing part is how much intelligence they didn't get, how much they got wrong, and um, uh, it's it's it, and the idea. You know what? They should. I think they should be held accountable for that, and they are the least accountable. As a matter of fact, as you know, uh, when all this back and forth after the horrors of Abu Ghraib came out and everything, uh, and they started rolling back a little bit on this torture stuff. And then all of a sudden it became, okay, the military can't do this. Okay, the military can't be part of this, but the CIA will always be allowed to torture. Right. Well, at least this, I don't know if the position is the CIA will always be allowed to torture, but they're always able to talk people into giving them the power if they feel that there's a need for it. You're right. The military has come out of this looking very good. The military did not torture people. When you were captured in Afghanistan or anywhere else, you wanted to be captured by the military because the minute the military captured you, they gave you a number, identity, there was a record for you and they knew where you were and could follow you at all times. If you got caught by the CIA, that's not true. I've had clients who were previous clients who were tortured and put in the prison of darkness in Kabul for weeks and months at a time. And one of the things they knew was nobody on earth knew where they were. They were even told, no one knows you're alive. Nobody knows where you are. No one will ever hear from you again if we don't want them to. And they would be sitting there wondering if they would ever be released. And of course, many of them were, but of course others tell us that not everybody was released and um, they're not everybody the CIA had is accounted for. I don't know what the true story is, but certainly there was no record keeping except the good faith of the CIA. Let me ask you something. Um, do you, I, I saw this in your, in your timeline. Um, Larry Wilkerson, former uh, chief of staff to Colin Powell, who was yeah. sec then secretary. Colonel Wilkerson, right. Yeah, okay. He said that he had a visible audit trail connecting Cheney's office to the prisoner abuses by the U.S. in the war on terror. Did you ever get that from him? No, I've spoken to him. I've had extensive phone calls with him, but he doesn't, he didn't give that out. You know, people don't give a law professor and lawyer for Abu Zubaydah all of the information they have, especially if it would be difficult. They want to keep control over it. He's a terrific guy. He's an honest guy. He talked to us. He was very, when I say terrific, he spoke to us. He told us true things. He didn't tell us everything, but he mostly let us know what he wasn't telling us. Um, um, and I think- uh, Well, what's the purpose of doing this audit trail if it's not to get it out there in the public and make it useful to people who, have been, who are being wrongfully held? I mean, I don't get it. Well, there are other uses for it, including internally in the government, reporting people and accounting for it and making sure that uh, truths are known, even if they're only known within the, the government. You know what? I'm not buying that. Okay. I don't like that. I think that's wrong. 
I don't I, wait, wait. You're not buying that they people do that or you think it's wrong? I think it's wrong. I'm not buying that as an excuse for not, for example, giving it to you or, and, and just putting it out in public. If you want to, if you know, why come out and say you have this audit trail and then keep it to yourself? Well, that's a, uh, look, I would like it. I'm not arguing with you. It'd be very helpful to me, my client, Abu Zabeda. I have another client there who's just been charged. I'm one of the lawyers for a man publicly known as Zubair. We would like information. That may well have been relevant to him too. So there are uh, lots of things out there. I'm not going to get in a fight with you, but what you don't buy, because I doubt anything you don't buy, I'm willing to purchase. <laughs> but, um, um, but the fact of the matter is that um, um, there are people out there, you know, I think it's kind of important to think back a little bit about all of the sins that we have committed in our personal life, in our relationships with people, in all sorts of factors, and that we don't really want people out. And I think that part of what we're looking at here are, you'll forgive me, sinners, some of whom are repentant, but not all of whom are necessarily fully open about what happened. I think Wilkerson falls into that category. And I, I, I agree. I agree, but here's here's my point, and I I don't know, maybe I'm too much of a uh, you know stickler or whatever, but our you know billions of our tax dollars are given to these agencies to protect us and to also do it within the law to the extent that it can be done, et cetera, et cetera. And when people screw up on a massive scale and now create a legal paradigm that promises future nightmares, somebody has to be held accountable. I'd like that. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm trying to hold them accountable. I'm also trying to figure out what the relevant and manageable target to hold accountable is. Because you can't simply have a long list of people starting from President Bush all the way down. Well, I mean... The prophets in the military, the people who beat people up, were violent, throwing them around. You know, there are plenty of people who were beaten up in Guantanamo. Oh yeah, they put a few. They put a few of the lower level schmucks who were doing it. They put a few of them in jail for a few months, five years, whatever. So the ones who were directly involved. But it's like when you're going after the mob, you start with the small fish and you keep moving up. And there has to be accountability at the highest level because it started at the highest level and then moved down to these people who were actually engaging in the, in, in the practices, you know? So the highest level is where you actually get some action if, if the accountability is, is uh, powerful enough, you know? If you, make, if you make it hurt those people, then the, the future leaders or whatever will think twice or try and be a little more intelligent about how they do things within the law instead of creating a whole new legal paradigm that is, it's monstrous, I think. Look, I'm a lawyer. And you're, and you're right and in the middle client. of the monster. And I have a client and my job is to get my client out. If I have to get him out by letting other people get off, that's what happens. Um, now I haven't been very successful getting him out. Some other people have gotten out, but my job is to get him out. 
And I'm not going to decide that in order for him to get out, President Bush has to be prosecuted. I'm not claiming you are wrong not to criticize him, but I think it's also wrong to think that talking to a person who represents a lawyer, and I may know a lot because of my investigations, but I'm still speaking to protect him. And I think I'm not, it doesn't help him to turn this into a bigger and worse situation involving more and more people. You know what? I completely appreciate that. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I think part of your problem is that he's connected to, you know, and again, it's, we go back to the three dead princes, you know, he's, he's connected to a power structure that's being protected by this government too. I'm not, that may be parallel and may be true. I'm not disputing that. But I also am not uh, interested in that because it doesn't help get him out. I believe he's being detained there because the American government knowingly created its first and only torture program to torture somebody for facts and things they knew were false just so they could get permission to torture. And that secret they want to keep is why he's still locked up. If he hadn't been tortured, he would have been released along with the other six, seven, 650, 700 other people in Guantanamo. And that's the most sinful part of it. They know that they're actually holding an innocent person there because they made false claims against him. And the more innocent he is, the more they need to keep him locked up. I wanna tell you, I really appreciate your work. I appreciate you know, your struggle that you're going through, because I do think it's part of trying to keep the system honest, as well as help this man uh, who has suffered enough. So um, we're gonna have to leave it there because we're out of time. Okay. But I hope this is not the last time I see you on this show, because I'll I really be wanna- to, I'm happy to talk. This okay. It needs to be told, even if you and I might differ a little bit about the story. Okay. Okay, fair enough. Thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Bye.